This is part of a series that we're calling The Dark Side of the Moon, the elements of process and investing we don't always like to spend time on, but have a huge cost if we avoid them. We'll cover risk, selling disciplines, red flagging, all along with our friends. I hope you find it a useful trip. See you on the other side. Today in our series, The Dark Side of the Moon, we are exploring value, and in particular, what to do with stocks that are perceived to be excessively valued. There are so many that fit this category and have fit this category for years now. As business models have changed with connectivity, networks, and the information age, there are more businesses that defy laws we thought applied to every business, laws like diminishing returns. But professionally, we prefer to rely on concepts and measurements that we feel are certain or at least proven somehow. We don't want to have to reevaluate things we've been taught and the methods that we think will help us. So are we at a crossroads, an evolution, an inevitable correction? To explore, we talk with investor Scott Booth, who brings experience in both the equity markets and the private markets and whose clear-mindedness has often provided really insightful conversations over the years. I hope you enjoy it. I have all these notes from a couple discussions uh, with Scott, and I think this is where I, I'd love to start. We, we wrote a piece in 2013 about a framework of thinking about valuing companies that seem excessively valued. And I wrote, among other things, it's kind of like that point where you can't be sane and use a DCF and say that it makes sense in some way. It's just, you're beyond that level. And what got to me, Scott, was at certain times in the last 12 months, I felt like not only are there stocks that go into our so-called other room, but there's some stocks that have escaped that into like another world. And so I connected with you and said, hey, can, can we talk about this and think about this? And one of the things that you started pointing me to was concept stocks and uh, abundance of optimism. And you said something very specific, I think, I'll probably get it wrong, but when the business model or the stock model becomes a recruitment model, that's a sign of some form of excessive uh, overabundance when, of uh, optimism. With any of that, choose to go anywhere you want, including ignoring that lead-in completely of whatever goes on in your head. Yeah, no, I think, I think a few things. I remember when we had that discussion, we were talking about, well, how do you think of excessive value? And I, I think I equated it to, well, we have conceptually valued stocks. So when conceptually valued stocks mean an overabundance of optimism. And to me, the only variable in there that kind of is variable is that uh, abundance, overabundance or, or a lack of abundance. But the other two are very real. And I think one of the mistakes you know, investors make, people make when thinking about valuation is that they reject conceptual, right? So conceptual is mm -hmm. what, what it is, right? Now, uh, at the end of the day, valuation metrics obscure valuation drivers, right? We rely too heavily on them. The drivers themselves are more conceptual. You know, mm -hmm. PE tangibles, we like it, right? It's something that it's a, re, it's a number, but that obscures the fact that really what matters in value is, you know, return on investment, growth, 
strategy. I mean, if we took, if we went into, if we hired an analyst and said the way that we think about value is we measure it based upon future developments minus expectations and just go from there, it would be an entirely different process of, of educating someone on how to invest than saying, well, we start with a multiple, we look at the market multiple and we work off of that. Because you're, you're basically making it very clear that it's all conceptual at a certain level. It's all future. It's all future driven. And it's really a, a significant uh, unknown quotient to it. So concept has to be a part of it. And we tend to prefer the observable over the unobservable, which is a natural tendency. And we do that in, in investing because investing so much around numbers that we gravitate to the tangible numbers and we overweight the actual facts over the more conceptual facts. So concept is a part of valuation, whether you like it or not. Optimism is a part of investing by definition. You wouldn't be investing if you didn't have some sort of future expectation that was positive. Um, and so optimism is a fixed variable. Concept is a fixed variable. The only thing that matters is the, you know, the uh, abundance of optimism. And I think we've seen a shift in that with you know, a world that's been technologically transformed formed in the last you know, decade or two. So there is a rationale for an abundance of optimism, which is different than you know, the stagflation 70s, right? So there is a, you can actually measure why there's more optimism. So I would say that's the first thing to consider when you start with the premise that there's excessive value, right? I think the other thing is that you know, whenever someone says, oh, everything's excessively valued, you say, well, hold up. Explain to me overvaluation without falling back on historical comps. Hmm. Why is Apple overvalued? I don't want to hear about where it used to trade. I don't want to go back to what a market multiple was for the nifty 50s and say that's where it is. Why is Apple overvalued? Or why is Peloton overvalued? Um, and I don't want to hear you fall back on the crutch of metrics. So. I think those things actually make it a more curious supposition. Like, is it excessively valued? I'm not sure, right? You know, the point around where you get into this sort of, you know, recruitment um, as an indication of excess. I mean, that's effectively what happens in, um, you know, mid-level marketing, you know, models where basically you have to co-op more people in to create the, the incremental value for the, the early participants. I think Bitcoin has a lot of indication of that, right? You have to become a part of the Bitcoin world for Bitcoin to go up, right? Because it doesn't have any value other than the fact that of, of, of incre increasing recruitment into the culture, right? But that value is a lot less sustainable than the cultural value of a great business that is part of a, you know, increasing return economy where, you know, a business that's ahead actually has the ability to continue to stay ahead. Uh, that's not always the case with other businesses, but businesses that can do that, I think, are special, and you have to question whether they're overvalued or not. I mean, um, there's about three different tangents I'd love to take. JP in one of our sessions said it dawns on him that when information, he wasn't saying this is a universal truth, but a pattern he was realizing. When information creation, access, amplification, and action all become much more democratized, 
the quality of the information goes down. And he said, bad things kind of happen. And he said, what he said in the, in the session was, he's seen that pattern so much that it's almost a surprise that we as professional investors would be surprised by some of the things that we see now as maybe information access, creation, all these things, and information could be in quotes, but the, these uh, elements, this data gets out there. Does that ring someplace in your one of your frameworks? Yeah, I don't know so much it becomes lower quality or just becomes more commoditized. I think one of the big disconnects for valuation thinking is that we think information is an advantage. Information is not an advantage anymore. It might have been in the 60s when Warren Buffett was, you know, knocking on, you know, the front door of a farmer's and sitting on the porch with him and getting him to sell, you know, shares that he didn't realize what the value was. But in an in an information age where machines are smarter than we are, information has no competitive advantage. So if we get back into the business of investing and how do you create a comparative and competitive advantage, the idea that you can do that through information and information analysis is overvalued. I, I remember... Uh, one of the Sundances, you made that comment in, in a little breakout group. Like, I think everyone was going fishing and I was hanging out, seeing what's going on. And he made that comment. Just, uh, it struck me instantly. And it was a great way for me to see something new, but also see it at a richer level. And that changed everything. The next morning, John Dillon <coughs> did a, um, a gathering on one of the back porches and uh, being a CEO of a number of public companies and some private companies. And the questions from us, there were about 18 of us, were, what questions should we ask management teams? From that, Scott, we actually then developed a, a, like a module of how business really works because the gap between the people that do the investing and how the business really works is pretty massive. And here, like 18 like serious professionals, very successful, like writing down every word because it was all sort of brand new, what John was telling you, he's letting us in the inside. So my question is, well, if the professionalization of our business leads us to CFAs and all this and rationals and you know University of Chicago and all this type of stuff, how do you gain the skills in our industry to actually think through the depth of the business if that's what it's gonna be? Because you can only get so much of that in the book. The, the investors that I think are really good um, and that can sustain it over time are the ones that play a, a duration arbitrage with the other competitors in the market, the other investors. And what that is, is an ability to increase their confidence interval on a longer duration basis, right? And, and we all say it, right? We all say that we want to be longer term investors and that's, you know, I invest on a five-year, you know, horizon, but you know, we can't ignore the fact that what we see is more powerful than what we think. And we see the market every single day. So we're always going to be reminded of the short term. And in a public market framework, you know, uh, liquidity breeds relativity, right? You know, because, because there's, there is, you know, almost infinite liquidity, we can't help but think of equity risk premium as opportunity cost in the near term, right? oh, it's a great business on a 10-year basis, they'll keep growing. But you know what? 
uh, there's some regulation headwinds over the next two quarters, and I can own something that's going up for the next two quarters and get back in, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just this constant short-termism that we're being pushed down on, on our on our thinking, and um, and I think you know, getting to 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 John's point, it's like you know how a business really works. The the great investors that that I have had the good fortune of like listening to and working with. You know, they tend to find managements that can explain how they're going to continue to grow in five years and in 10 years, because they recognize that the biggest, you know, misnomer contrived metric in our industry is terminal value, right? It's just, I don't know who, who invented it, but it's just such a nonsensical starting point that we all start from. And it's that sort of light bulb that, wait a minute. Terminal value is different for everyone, and yet we make the assumption that it's the same for everyone. So I'm going to that dislocation and work backwards from there. And you find a great management that can actually conceptually, because again, it's not in the numbers, it's a forecast, can conceptually talk about how they're going to adapt, how they're going to develop new products, how they're going to enter new markets, you know, how they can have fast mover advantage because they can't be first mover in everything. Um, and that they can com compound because the, the, the present value effect of a business that can, can grow 5% more per year over 10 years is a multiple of 50, right? right? And that's where you get into what people say, oh, it's excessive. Well, it isn't if you have a fairly decent confidence that in five years, there isn't terminal value, there's still growth. A, a couple things. Um, one, I still remember a class at Wharton, which in some ways, different people at different organizations like Goldman, for instance, if they come into an organization, you have to retrain people you know, to become investors because they're used to doing it. Well, anyway, at Wharton, I had to be retrained because I had learned all this stuff, which I was challenging everything. I still remember a discussion for about 15 minutes in, in whether we should be using 5% or 4% as the terminal value. <laughs> and yeah. now it's like, and it was a serious discussion because we're all like, you know, we're taking notes and you know, there were Nobel prizes being awarded. <laughs> It's like that. So who was to say? Like, yeah, like, I don't know. That four to five, like, it's a big thing. So Scott, when you are, you know, wanting to compare the the conceptually valued company, can you go into a little bit deeper of how then you're identifying that overabundance of optimism? Are you really? Are there any characteristics that you see commonly, or maybe just in our day and age right now, that tip you off for that? Well, I think that what we have seen, particularly in the last 10 years, is literally that there are two rooms, right? And that they are both legitimate. And I kind of loosely break them into more traditional businesses of diminishing marginal return. And this, you know, what I would call sort of knowledge industries, uh, primarily software, which are increasing rates of return, which is something that we were never taught. Alfred Marshall has no idea what that is. He's rolling in his grave as we talk about it right now, right? So um, again, we were, we were anchored into classical training that taught us that, you know, you know, there's only diminishing returns, right? That, you know, you have terminal values, that winners get bloated, um, that, you know, that uh, physical cost of expansion. Um, 
And, and so it's almost like starting with that dichotomy of businesses that fall into that category. And there's nothing wrong with those businesses. That's the reality for most businesses, but it's not where value is being created. And, you know, it would be an interesting exercise to go back and tell me at what point Google and Apple were overvalued. I mean, you know, Mark Andreessen in 2011 wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal saying Apple and Google are undervalued, software is going to eat the world. He was right, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's been proven in terms of their expansion because they were um, increasing return models, right? Tremendous network effects, tremendous qualities of invested customers. Um, but I think sort of differentiating those that belong in that other room, you have to start with some of those softer variables. And as, as finance people, we don't like that. We like hard facts and numbers. And so, you know, pushing people to be more curious and to, and, and to digest more soft variables, you know, like culture, like strategy, like, you know, future opportunities, it, it's where the comfort is. And so that's where the opportunity is. Um, and I think that that's kind of where you start with where, what's overvalued and what's undervalued. And, the, and again, the, the distinction between value and growth is just a, a misnomer as well. I mean, and, you know, that just has to be thrown out. It's got a couple things. One, we, we like to talk about at certain times breaking down the job of stock picking into four different jobs. One of them being, biz, being a business analysis and on the other end being a, a portfolio structure and construction and those things. And oftentimes I'll say that most of the bright people, young people, you can train to be a pretty good business analyst. Pretty good. Maybe not perfect, maybe not like really understanding everything, but pretty good. The second task is valuation analysis. It breaks it down for people. The third is like market psychology. Can you tell in those second and third tasks, which we break down kind of artificially, the whole thing's broken down artificially. Can you identify some trait about people that are gonna be good at those things when you've been training people over the last 20 years coming in and working with them? Can you go, oh, they're gonna be really good at that. I can train most people in being a business analyst, but I can't always find someone that's gonna get these other elements right. You know, I think one of the trends we've seen in the last decade, and it's um, an important one is this, this blending between private equity and, and public equity, and that the best investors are doing both because I think that it's that framework coming out of the private markets that make them better public market investors. And so some of the best investors are the ones that weren't glued to their screens, that weren't overly visually biased to what they thought. So when they actually started to develop their analytic internal tool set, they were doing it with companies that basically they just had to analyze the business, right? So they didn't have the distraction of the market to sort of make them question things. And I think that, they've, that that's helped extend that duration a bit. Um, and when you're analyzing a private company versus a public business, you, know, you, you see a difference in the way that people ask questions. Um, you see less reliance on short-term metrics, far greater dependency on assessment of management. Um, and, uh, and much more focus on where there are significant levers of growth. 
And I, I mean, it's been a growth dominated success formula in the market for the last decade, um, partly because of what's gone with, on with overall uh, global economic structure. Uh, but as people who are looking further ahead were the ones that I think have captured most of that. Um, and I do think that what's happening right now with particularly in private, where you're seeing so, so much money going in and sort of wanting to own sectors, it's almost like some of these great investors went back and looked at, okay, what was the right price I should have been paying for market leaders 20 years ago? And the number is so high, it's so staggering that they're like, well, I just, I don't have to pick the winner. There might be a hundred SaaS companies trading at 40 times revenue in the market right now. And maybe only 10 of them are worth it, but they're so undervalued those 10 right now that it makes up for the mistake of buying them all. And you're starting to see that in the private markets now. I think that's also what's driving this general multiple expansion in the public market as well. Um, interest rates. We uh, arguably we've had a whole generation of investors um, that either interest rates were going to be favorable in that DCF model, or it was just a non-factor. Didn't have to think about it. And how do you think about employing interest rates, inflation at this particular moment? And how have you done that in the past? Where's it? Where does it fit in for you? Well, there's a sort of a basic math to, you know, listen, a DCF is ultimately very important. And if you're going to take, you know, a, you know, if you're going to take a company at what the risk-free rate is in the equity risk premium is going to give you an idea of what the multiple should be. There is a reason why this math kind of makes sense. And a swing of 200 basis points in interest rates can affect the multiple, the difference in a multiple of maybe 25%, right? So, on that level, it's kind of just basic relative value. Uh, but I do think that it does matter what the structure of interest rates are, low interest rate environment or a higher interest rate environment. And that 200 basis going from 1% to 3% is materially different in how you look at you know, high growth, long duration companies then going from 6 to 8%. Because I just don't think that at, in such a low interest rate environment, the idea of getting off the great compounding bus of a great business makes as much sense if I'm only earning 3% versus I'm only owning where I'm making 8%. So I do think, you know, there is that basic level. I think what the market's adjusting to right now is, you know, it's, it's just computing has more or less done it at this point. The market multiple relative to a shift in the risk-free rate of maybe 200 basis points. That's kind of what I think has been priced in right now. And that's the efficiency of the market, right? And that's the asset allocators just who, who make those switch, switches all the time, almost algorithmic uh, changes, which keeps the market efficient. But that has nothing to do with individual businesses. Um, I still think in a low uh, interest rate world, the value of growth is is higher. Just like house prices will will collapse and things like that. And... Well, they also fit together sort of symbiotically in the sense that high growth companies are also deflationary, right? And so, I mean, that's the whole Kathy Wood, you know, 
you know, virtual cycle that's perpetual motion machine, right? That we're going to constantly have more productivity and lower inflation and lower interest rates. And it's all going to be driven by a, a group of high growth companies that I have the crystal ball to own. Um, that's a little one-sided. And that actually gets into the recruitment side of things. And when you start to hear people who are making arguments that are more to, to get you into their camp, as opposed to like, I really don't care what you think. I'm just telling you what I think. Those are some of the anecdotal ways you can see excess in the market. And I think they're getting corrected. It's not a bad thing. Scott, to go a little further on that, when you talk about this change of increasing returns, you know, most infinitely increasing returns in some businesses, is there a knock-on effect that you've observed at all with maybe for the traditional businesses, any capital starvation or anything like that? that you think might come from that? Literally, I think every business is a software intensive business now. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to find any business that's like, yeah, I'm going to survive in the long run, but you know, I don't have a computer. Um, and so it definitely uh, seeps into all industries and to varying degrees. I think that it's still early innings uh, in the sense that most of the market value has been created by the, by the, or software businesses, you know, or businesses that are highly dominated by intellectual capital, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Microsoft, Apple, Google, I mean, the, the fangs, right? I mean, these are businesses that are, are built upon the idea that you can expand capacity almost infinitely with very, very little incremental cost, right? It's just more code. Um, and then there'll be businesses where, you know, the, the impact of software will be only marginal, right? And, and then there's everything in between. And I think we're sort of in the phase now where, you know, a lot of traditional businesses are becoming increasingly software intensive, which means that they're going to have more of those um, qualities that are less, you know, tethered to fixed investment, fixed assets, physical goods. And we see that on the private side in a lot of SaaS verticalization you know, of, of traditional industries. Um, everything from, you know, coffee shops to realtors, right? You know, businesses that are only in the first inning of really figuring out how they can enhance efficiency and productivity through, through sort of, you know, knowledge-based learnings and, and, and intangible value, right? Inten- you know, things that you can't put on the balance sheet and, you know, doesn't matter whether you're you know, you're capitalizing or expensing it, right? It's it's not so much what those bottom line numbers say, it's how they're enhancing the, the growth opportunities for those businesses. And we see a ton of that uh, right now, you know, laundromats, who would have thought, right? You know, that are just rapidly adopting really cool new software. Uh, I mean, look at what Toast did with restaurants in about one year, right? Uh, and so that's kind of where I think we're at right now is that more businesses are going to show more of those efficiencies, which are going to mean higher margins, which are going to mean higher multiples. And so when, you know, Jeremy Grantham gets on there and says, look at how overvalued the market is. I called it for the umpteenth time, you know, and points to the chart from the 1950s, you know, he may be the one without a computer. I don't know. On the other end of the market, uh, just to play with it for a second, I, I was raised as a change investor, and we fit into, begrudgingly fit into a 
growth category because we had to pick one or the other. But a lot of the things I was taught was industries like oil field services and <clears throat> things that actually had what I'd call a either a renaissance or a reinvention or a redefinition or somehow got back into the zeitgeist. I look at some of the major industries right now through the ESG or the environmental lens that are really like hated, almost you're not allowed to talk about them in some European institutions, let alone invest in them. And I'm just wondering about the possibility, Scott, do you think of some of those businesses, not businesses, massive industries, getting rethought through an environmental lens um, in like a, a next stage of E or ESG, which is a little messier and not just um, reductionist and exclusionary. Do you think there's, because right now I think there's a lot, from what I understand, there's a lot of really super positive MPV projects that banks will not be associated in, in uh, funding. Do you, how do you think that will play out? That you're right, Pip, that you know, that we're going to move more towards incremental thinking on the ESG front versus sort of absolute, I think any movement starts with absolute goals and then it starts to realize, okay, well, I got to make progress consistently as opposed to idealistically. And, and that's where I think the evolution of, you know, just even data, right? You know, and the ability to capture and measure uh, data and use it in, as a productive resource, which didn't exist before, will lead to even more incremental measures of progress. I actually think that 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 it, that blurs those black and white lines, and I do think that industries that couldn't get funded or can't because they fall too too close to a shade of black right now will actually get a more gray as they show that there's incremental benefit to what they're doing, mm -hmm. um, and that you know we're not going to rid the royal world of of of, of carbon usage overnight, but. But, but it's good to do it on a, on a progressive basis. And if we can measure that, it will actually make people feel like we're heading in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So I actually don't think that we're gonna see wholesale revolt. I actually think more prag pragmatism is probably part of the future. Um, and I think a younger generation is probably you know, capable of that, you know, cause we always go from ideal to more pragmatic and, you know, as we mature. And I do think that, you know, uh, Gen Z, um, is has a value orientation where they want to see these changes and that they'll take a more increasingly pragmatic approach to be, uh, affecting those changes. It's always interesting to see how the market, uh, you know, changes day to day. And uh, I just appreciate not having to be in the game every single day anymore. <laughs> <laughs> In the middle of explaining why we may avoid softer variables like culture, strategy, and a change from diminishing return to increasing return models, Scott said something like, it's where the comfort isn't, so that's where the opportunity is. And I think that's what makes this conversation a dark side of the moon type of topic. I don't think many of us willingly make time to go into the discomfort, but if we can do it together and do it within our process, we have a better chance of uncovering all the opportunity and all the insights there to be had. So thanks, Scott, for joining us, and thanks for listening.